Bow. Well, hi, and welcome to the Good Writing Podcast. Welcome to the Good Writing Podcast, where two MFA friends talk about writing craft. <laughs> and it's been a little while. It's been a while. So we're bringing you our Halloween episode. In, Happy um, Halloween this in, uh, January. Yeah, in January. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, we're all out here trying. Uh, <laughs> this episode, we're talking about The Haunting of Hill House. The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, the novel. We talk about the uh, use of subjectivity and the absence of an objective ghost in this novel and what that means for the characters therein and how their subjectivity is used to better evaluate these scenes as they are prescribed in the book. It's delicious. This is a phenomenal novel. And Mm -hmm. uh, enjoy the episode. Enjoy. Bye. <laughs> Hello, Emily. Ben, happy Halloween. <laughs> happy Halloween. Happy Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. Happy Ramadan to all those who celebrate across the literary world. It's been a little while. It's, it has it. Time flies. <laughs> Time flies. We're, we've both gone through major upheavals in our lives, <laughs> and, um, and but now we're here. We're back. We're back in the stew, and, and we're cooking. We're we're cooking live. Um, we've got bay leaves. We've got thyme, <laughs> cardamom, coriander, cumin, all the great sea spices. Some of my favorites. We we've got them. It's going the, all in the pot with a healthy dose of good writing. Because this is the Good Writing Podcast. This is going to be such a good one. I'm so happy um, yeah. that we're doing this. Um, but before we get into this book and mm-hmm. the amazing craft in this book, yes, Ben, it has been more than six months. Yeah. What have you written? <laughs> oh, I did it. <laughs> like a little bit. Like a little bit of stuff. Because um, everything went haywire at my job. Uh, when I still had it, um, there, there was a, I don't care if people know that I don't have it anymore. I can finally be, like, less worried about that, too. Like, uh, I yeah. can finally officially say, fuck them. Uh, I don't like that job. I never liked it. I'm glad to not have it. But, um, they, um, yeah, everything went haywire. I had to do 8 million things every single day, uh, coming basically up from, like, June, July, all the way through December. And then after I put in all that hard work, they laid me off. And, um, yeah, fuck them. <laughs> fuck them for yeah, doing that. But, yeah. Just great. Yeah. But here we are now. Here, here we are now. And during that time, I did not get to write very much, but I did write a little bit. I have a thing that I am working on and that I like. And that um, now that I don't have a job, I'm going to work on a lot more, I have a feeling. Like, the, the hopefully being unemployed will actually spur me to do something uh more meaningful with my time. <laughs> Neat. I look forward to the updates. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay. Julie, how about okay. you, Emily, in these last six months? No, uh, not really. No. <laughs> Nothing meaningful. <laughs> um, I did take a couple of really... I just took a couple of classes. Um, mm-hmm. I took a uh, workshop, which probably wasn't the right venue for me, Um Short story workshops are not a good venue to get feedback on novels. Um, mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. was a, a miscalculation on my part. Um, yeah. And then... Uh, Who did you I take t- that with? 
I, I took it through Lighthouse, which is a yeah. uh, writing group here in Denver. Um, mm-hmm. But this class was virtual, and they often have virtual classes. Um, if you, dear listener, are looking for upcoming events to put on your calendar, some writing class-type activities, Lighthouse has an annual LitFest um, in, I think, June. And they just announced which writers, which famous writers are, are, are going to be part of it. So if you want to... Yeah. Tune in in person or virtually for something. The Lit Pass Through Lighthouse is uh, in June. Cool. How much did it cost to do the workshop that you did? If you uh, that. Yeah. The workshop that I did, I think it was around $400. Okay. Yeah. It was like eight, just, eight weeks Just wondering for like if that. any listener is curious. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I did like an eight-week workshop. Uh, that's probably a good kind of venue. If you've never hmm. been in a, like, if you haven't done an MFA, if you haven't, didn't do creative writing workshops in undergrad like absolutely check out this is one of the great venues that you can find a good 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 workshop in and it's mm-hmm. i think i think it was around like 400 for like a six or eight week class that's good uh, that, that's a good price i think yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it was reasonable yeah, um cool. and then i did a uh craft lecture with melissa broder who mm-hmm. we did an episode on her novel milk fed um mm-hmm. I was going to say recently, but that's a lie. <laughs> yeah. Recently, if, recent if you were to, to go back in the list of episodes, you would find it pretty recently. Yeah. 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 So I did a craft lecture with her um, and that was dope. And we'll do another session sometime. Like, Would love to just steal some of her ideas and, and talk about them on the pod in another cool. episode. Cool. Cool. Excellent. But yeah, that's nice. That's good that you've been attending uh, the, those workshops and been able to do that. The, that's fun. Has it been like more just like a time thing that hasn't kept, that has kept you from writing, or is it like maybe like just hard to find something to write about right now? Like, um, it's. I mean, it's always anytime I haven't written, the the root of the issue is you know you can't inspiration can't come to you, and you can't yeah. get inspiration on the page if you're never putting words on a page. Yeah. So whether it's good or bad, if you're not devoting the time to trying to write, you're not going to write anything good. Yeah. So like the root of the issue is always lack of devotion to, yeah. to, to, I, I haven't had good hygiene, good, good routines for that, but mm-hmm. also, you know, it hasn't been calling me. Um, yeah. And, and that makes that's a difference okay. too. We go yeah. through seasons. Yeah, exactly. As you said, you've been painting. So that. Yeah, I've been doing stuff. <laughs> I've seen some of that lovely painting that you're making. It looks really good. So, Thanks. yeah. <laughs> some lemons. Yeah. <laughs> lemon is a great subject matter for a painting. I, it's, I really agree. It's, yeah. it's nice. It's nice. It's I, I like. Uh, I just. Yellow. Yellow is an underrated yeah. color. I'll say it. <laughs> yeah. Anywho. Ben, I want to get into it. Let's get into yeah, it. It's been too long it. since we've let's gotten into it. Exactly. Well, let's see what's happening on the page. So please, in- intro us if you would like to do so. Dear listener, today Ben and I are discussing a classic in what Stephen King called the only good ghost story of the 20th century, or one of the only good ghost stories of the 20th century, um, The Haunting of Hill House, the novel mm-hmm. by Shirley Jackson. Mm-hmm. Ben, had you experienced Shirley Jackson before this yes i had read um we always lived in the castle a book that i love like i have excellent. a lot of love for we always lived in the castle yeah excellent i did not actually read that one i skipped that week of our mm. class and i just never <laughs> never went back yeah <laughs> i never went back um i was traveling that week um what what was uh we always live in the castle why do you love it um, well, I just think Shirley Jackson has a, an immediate ability to make a recognizable character um, mm-hmm. that is so, like, 
draw a great way to just draw you into what is written here and i think we see this in hill house as well like the just uh, an immediate way of seeing a clear-cut like fully formed person on the page and, and entering into a story through their viewpoint um mm-hmm. it, it makes a huge difference uh, on just like the readability and, and just the amount of like relatability you can have to something and also her stylistic choices feel timeless like nothing mm-hmm. about this book really feels like that it was written in the 50s besides maybe some of the vernacular choices but that's those are few and far between and then it could just be like an author making those choices from the current standpoint would not be unreasonable either like yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah seconded on timelessness um she has an attention to language and like it's it's really rewarding to read like gothic or Victorian literature and to like once if you're in the right headspace and have the patience like mm-hmm. I find Oscar Wilde and um Sheridan Lefanu and all, all those like classic gothic horrors um really fun um mm-hmm. it's really rewarding like how complicated the language can be how complicated the sentence structure can be mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um yeah I I think she takes the things that I love about those and makes them a made them a little bit closer to modern uh, yeah. which makes sense timeline wise this book was published in 1959 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. amazing agreed about <laughs> just really strong characters and it being from the point of view characters perspective that's actually the main topic I want to talk about today uh, mm-hmm. main craft lesson here is mm-hmm. uh, we're going to talk about some choices that she made to not just sh- you know she doesn't describe the ghost instead mm-hmm. she as the characters describe the ghosts it's it's mm-hmm. considered a psychological ghost story because it is yeah. from the psychology of these subjective point of view characters yeah yeah i really like that it is a, a very much left up into interpretation if there actually is a ghost or not like there very well might not be a ghost in this house like and yeah there's a good argument for there not being one yeah yeah and um it's reminiscent of other gothic the other psychological ghost classic, which is the turning, the turning of the screw. Um, okay. That's the cla- the other classic of like, is there really a ghost in this house, or is mm. this point of view character, is this lady just nuts? Yeah. Um, so if you like the turning of the screw, the haunting of Hill House is for you. <laughs> Henry James is the turning of the screw. Yeah, I have not read the turning of the screw. I confess, yes. not on my list. <laughs> <laughs> um, anywho i want to do one cool historical fact about shirley jackson before we get into the actual book yes um you y'all know i love an introduction from an from a from a literary scholar before we get mm-hmm. into the actual novel mm-hmm. um and a cool fact about shirley jackson is that she wrote two types of things and only two mm-hmm. types of things and it was um listener you may be familiar with shirley jackson from um her short story the lottery which i know i read in high school as a signed reading um the lottery is a short story where spoiler townspeople all gather and then they just like choose a lottery and then choose one person from their town to stone to death every year Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's it's a cool it's a really interesting story it's taught in high school because it's like everyone's it's it's a good example of like a social custom that no one's criticizing not being a good idea <laughs> that that was what my high school english teacher you know took out of uh, the yeah. lottery so uh that 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 short story is super duper famous so you have probably heard of shirley jackson before yeah. um but a cool historical fact about shirley jackson is that she wrote two, t- two types of things she wrote these uh 
supernatural stories, these supernatural scary stories, mm-hmm. like The Haunting of Hill House and the Lottery. And she wrote like housewife comedies, like mm-hmm. housewife <laughs> comedy nonfiction essays that were published mm-hmm. in magazines, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Bon Appetit type, type magazine. Um, yeah. And I just love the contrast in those two styles. Um, mm-hmm. I also firmly believe that comedy writers have phenomenal timing and comedy and horror writing similarly really depends on it's successful or not based on good timing. Yeah. Um, and like yeah. creating audience expectation and either meeting that expectation or thwarting it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of crossover between comedy and, and horror in general. Yeah. yeah um, there is one moment in the haunting of Hill house where I was like, yeah, she's a, she writes housewife fiction, housewife mm-hmm. nonfiction. Um, and I want to read it to you because that is the only mm-hmm. moment. And otherwise it's like, otherwise you would never expect these two yeah. subject matters to cross over. Yeah. Um, this is from when our point of view character, Eleanor is just getting to the house. She opens her suitcase on the high bed, slips off her stiff, stiff city shoes with grateful relief and began to unpack at the back of her mind, at the back of her mind, the thoroughly female conviction that the best way to soothe a troubled mind is to put on comfortable shoes. That's it. That is yeah. the only moment yeah. where I was like, oh. <laughs> you see that kind of the, those two things come together exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, otherwise, this is uh, Ben. What do you th- did you think that this was like pretty subject matter wise typical horror story? Is this about what you would expect for a um, story? I I think that it is interesting to ask that question because. This is very specifically a ghost story, and ghost stories are kind of their own genre within horror stories to a certain extent. They have their own tropes and, like, um, sets of expectations and, um, like, kind of metaphorical uses that are unique to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, beyond just, like, you know, the difference between a ghost and, like, an otherworldly horror is pretty vast. Like, you, you can mix them, of course, you can mix and match things, as always, but, like, the this definitely feels like kind of an er version of a ghost story like comparing it to the victorians makes a lot of sense with doing that because it is very much in that lineage of moving from that you know place where it is the ghost as an aspect of a uh, you know the the haunting being a, a result of the haunted not instead of like the ghost being necessarily a presence brought down by um you know some force beyond what the that is beyond the experience of the characters that are present within the scene mm-hmm. um we we see you know that it, it is like you know calling it a psychological ghost story is makes perfect sense for that very reason in that you, you are looking at a ghost that is as much part of the minds of the observers as it is its own observed thing like yeah, yeah and I, I think that it it in comparing it to the rest of horror and the horror that i read it's extremely different um, the, a lot of horror, especially horror written now, I think goes in further directions um, and is much more interested in... I don't want to just call it shock value because I don't want to like cheapen people like utilizing violence and utilizing extremity because I think that stuff is useful and interesting. But like this, I think, tries to develop its fear through, you know just that the psychology of its characters of like what's lurking with inside their minds and how is that being the cause of, of their of the problems they're experiencing rather than these outward forces which i think are much more common in a lot of current um tellings of ghost stories and things like that like 
Yeah. Yeah, the the outward occurrences in, in this story are not just like summarizing them would not be that's that spooky. Yeah, right. I, yeah, that that's the other thing is that I, I did not find this book to be particularly scary. Like mm-hmm. I don't there was one moment that I did like get a little tingle from and I was like, Oh, that's kinda of, that's pretty spooky. But like most of it is pretty demure in terms of that sort of thing. They'll be like, Oh, it's so cold in this room and it's like, Well, that's not scary, it's just kind of interesting is that that's happening. Like Yeah, yeah. Um one of the the moments when the characters are scared most scared is like it sounds like there's some kind of creature going down they're in their bedroom it's late mm-hmm. at night it sounds mm-hmm. like there's some kind of creature going down the hallway and ram knocking on the doors really hard and like yeah babbling um mm-hmm. yeah so like the events when summarized not that scary of course i'd be spooked as hell if that was happening to me in real life of course um what was the moment mm-hmm. that you were that you got the scary tingle uh that moment was when they were um it was the narrator and her friend were like lying in bed together and she was like hol- she thought she was holding her friend's hand yeah. and then it turns she's like oh she's over on the other side of the room I- whose hand am i holding that was and it's like the end of the chapter like yeah. that moment definitely got me i was like oh that's that's creepy yeah like yeah eleanor it was eleanor and theodora um mm-hmm. and eleanor yeah thought she was holding theodora's hand and like the like the room went cold the like she lost her sense of sight it was it became mm-hmm. totally dark even though they had left a light on and she thought she was holding theodora's hand and wasn't yeah um, yeah that's a, that's a really that was a good moment why did that moment hit you yeah i i think what uh, that moment hit me because i didn't expect it. it it's the entirety of the timing thing that you're talking about like mm-hmm. i for like there was no part of me that expected her to not be that for it to be like the ghost's hand or something like that like i was fully immersed in the sense like oh yeah they're terrified of this thing that's happening outside of the room because all of the attention is placed on this the knocking on the door this thing that's outside from them that's that's what the scary thing is so you don't expect the call to be coming from inside the house essentially like yeah that's why that reveal works so well yeah Um, can we find that moment i I am looking for it but here i'll read like basically the paragraph going up to that moment um now eleanor thought perceiving that she was lying sideways on the bed in the black darkness holding with both hands to theodora's hands holding so tight she could feel the fine bones of theodora's fingers now i will not endure this they think to scare me well they have i am scared but more than that i am a person i am human i am walking walking reasoning humorous human being and I will take a lot from this lunatic, filthy house, but I will not go along with hurting a child. No, I will not. I will, by God, get my mouth to open right now, and I will yell. I will yell. I will yell. Stop it. She shouted, and the lights were on the way she had, and the lights were on the way they had left them. And Theodore was sitting up in bed, startled and disheveled. What Theodore was saying? What Nell? What? God, God, Eleanor said, flinging herself out of bed and across the room to stand shuddering in a corner. God, God, whose hand was I holding? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, that reveal is good. Such a good reveal. And I think it's so effective because 
how of how long that sentence that you were reading before mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am scared, but more than that, I am a person. I am human. I am a walking, reasoning, humorous human being, and I will take a lot from this lunatic, filthy house. But I will not go along with hurting a child. No, I will not. Semicolon. I will, yeah. by, by, by God, get my mouth to open right now, and I will yell. I will. I will. I will. I will yell. Stop it! She shouted, and the lights were on the way they had left them. And Theodora was sitting up in bed, startled and disheveled. That was one sentence. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a massive sentence. It's a good, great use of a semicolon, like great, great use of that to even just extend it further because that that length is what builds the tension too, right? Like yeah. that that's how you're leading up into it. Yeah, and the reveal, you know, it's really made explicit in dialogue after that when Eleanor says, "God, God, whose hand was I holding?" But like mm-hmm. Theodora being, she woke Theodora up. Theodora was yeah. not part of this experience as she thought yeah. the whole time. Yeah. Um, the reveal being at the end of a long sentence is such a good move here because mm-hmm. it's setting the tone, uh, mm-hmm. immersing us in the moment before mm-hmm. giving us the grounding that we needed. Um, there's mm-hmm. actually another really good moment similar to that. that oh, used before that same... we move on from it, can I just refer yeah. to very briefly what, what I think of as a literary kickflip that happens in the middle of that sentence is her doing the I will yell, I will, I will yell, stop it, she shouted like having that bit of dialogue within the set like that movement is just so good like and that's just a little trick that's a flourish she's showing off when she does that it's so gorgeous because it's i will yell i will i will i will yell stop it yeah stop it she shouted um it's moving from internal internal thought process where we're really stuck with her like part of the Mm -hmm. part of the issue is that she's um not only is the room like blackened deafened she was also mm-hmm. silenced right she had t- tried to speak earlier and like no sound had come out mm-hmm. um yeah so it's moving from internal dialogue to something said external but it's also the internal dialogues about not being able was about like feeling stuck and not being able to say to yell mm-hmm. and then she kind of surprises herself when she successfully mm-hmm. yells right mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. yeah it that was phenomenal yeah yeah but please go go to your other sections that you wanted to bring us to Okay, so there is another moment, uh, actually same chapter five, beginning of section four. So this uses the same similar trick of like withholding the reveal until the end of, here are two sentences, but withholding that reveal and the actual tangible information that we need and first showing us the interiority, like where, what they're, what they're thinking about and then showing us why they're thinking that, um, Sitting up in the two beds beside each other, Eleanor and Theodora reached out between and held hands tight. Semicolon. The room was brutally cold and thickly dark. From the room next door, the room which until that morning had been Theodora's, came the steady, low sound of a voice babbling. Too low for words to be understood, too steady for disbelief. So they're um, situated, like it's, it's opening up a section so it's mm-hmm. mise en scène. It's like opening, like we're already in the moment. <laughs> we're drop, mm-hmm. we're dropping us partway through the situation, mm-hmm. and um, we're seeing what their reaction is before we're seeing what's scaring them, which uh, is a really good classic suspense move for anything yeah. horror. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Agreed. That was a spooky scene. I don't think I've mm-hmm. taken the moment to ask you overall what you thought of this book. 
Oh, um, I really enjoyed it. It's great. Like, uh, <laughs> another great work from Shirley Jackson, like, cementing herself as just, you know, in my mind, one of the excellent authors of the American 20th century. Like, Seconded. Cl- uh, clearly up there, you know. A great genre writer, like, fantastically entertaining while also being deeply empathetic and, and towards the characters and towards the scenario and also literarily interesting at the same time. Like, mm-hmm. doing all three, being a, a, an extremely talented writer um, who's also managing to write things that are fun to read, which is hard to get sometimes. Yeah, the, just, like, freshness on a sentence level is so fun yeah. here. Um, yeah. So... Uh, one of the bazillion examples of that that I loved Mm -hmm. when she's first introducing Luke who is another Mm -hmm. he's Luke is set to like inherit this house Um, yeah do do we want to give a brief overview of the book just to we should probably give a brief little summary (laughs) sorry everybody it's been a little bit since we've done this (laughs) would you mind Ben yeah, let, let's see if I can remember it um, for the most part. Um, so basically, a uh, paranormal investigator, the professor, um, I'm not going to remember anyone's names for the most part. Dr. Montague. Probably, yeah, Dr. Montague um, is, has essentially invited our narrator, uh, who Actually, is... Actually, not an I. She's the point of view character, but it's third person, so she's not a narrator. Yes. Yeah, oh, true, true. Yes, but our, our POV character, Eleanor, uh, who is invited, has been invited to come to this paranormal investigation at, at the Hill House, the infamous Hill House that, of the title. Um, she's been invited there. I, I believe at the beginning she doesn't know that she's been invited along with other people, or does she know that there are other people that are going to be there? I think she she knew it wouldn't just be like her one-on-one with the doctor. Yeah, okay, um, yeah. And it's, he's invited her and these other people because, based on newspaper clippings, he thinks that they might have some additional sensitivity to supernatural stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because she had an experience as a child where it seems like she may have done, like, a minor telekinetic event happened around her or something like that. Like, yeah. 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 And, and then she's there uh, with Theodora, her, uh, the other woman that comes in in the early part of the novel, um, the... The two of them kind of become close at the beginning and then have their tensions throughout, as well as Luke, who, as you said, is the heir to the house, and Dr. Montague makes up the fourth. There isn't a fourth person that comes in until Dr. Montague, the comedic relief of Dr. Montague's uh, psychic wife and her assistant. Yeah. Assistant (laughs) slash they're totally having an affair. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, yeah, they go and they investigate the haunting of Hill House, as it says. They go and try to experience the events, and Dr. Montague is trying to find physical evidence of this, and during this, Eleanor begins to kind of have a mental breakdown uh, as this yep. is happening. Yeah, And, importantly, the four of them, the original core four, um, experience really spooky shit from the house, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Dr. Montague's wife and Arthur do not. Yes. yes. Um, they're... Mrs. Montague and, and Arthur are like doing basically a Ouija board. They're like, "We love you, house. We want to release your spirits." And the house mm-hmm. is like not giving them anything. Whereas yeah. the people who are like, <sighs> are, are getting a lot good. of supernatural experiences. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. speaking of characters, and just like a really delightful level of attention to language and sentence structure. Mm-hmm. Um, when introducing Luke, um, he's like, Luke's aunt told the family lawyer that at any rate, 
there was really nothing in the house that Luke could steal. The old silver there was of some value, she told the lawyer, but it represented an almost insuperable difficulty for Luke, Colin. It required mm-hmm. energy to steal it and transform it into money. Mm-hmm. Um, great sentence structure, mm-hmm. great detail, just mm-hmm. a solid way to introduce uh, a charming rogue. Yeah, exactly. Like, a little lazy, a little too much effort to do that, but still someone who would be interested in trying to scamper off with what he could if he thought there was something to be done with it. Yeah. Yeah, total rake, that guy. Yeah, exactly. A perfect word to describe him, a rake. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah. that's how they describe him later. Yeah. Um, yeah, total la- rake, that guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. So, the main craft technique, other than... Mm-hmm attention to character being well defined in your character's interiority being good at writing varying your sentence lengths all the standards Mm -hmm. shirley Mm -hmm. jackson of course knocking it out Um, the main craft lesson that i think we should take away from the haunting of hill house is um having your characters describe what is happening instead Mm -hmm. of showing it in your description the haunting's while Ben didn't find them scary, Ben has a much higher tolerance for scariness than some of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> the haunting, the scariness of them, they're effective because we don't actually get confirmation in description, in, in like neutral, objective description, if this is happening or what yeah. is happening. We're always introduced to it either like from the interiority of one character or in dialogue and the character, like just the transcription of what the character said and how they tried to be brave about it and Mm -hmm. describe it jokingly so one of the bazillion examples of that succeeding really well um one page 144 in my edition that's section two of i think chapter five please hold yep section two of chapter five um i'm gonna read a, a little section out loud um So Eleanor and Theodora are discovering what's happened to Theodora's room. Chapter 5, Section 2. Eleanor and Theodora go back upstairs. Um, Mm -hmm. Eleanor hears Theodora's door slam shut again. Theodora smothered Eleanor. Um, Moving quickly, Eleanor ran into the hall into Theodora's doorway. What is it? What does it look like? What does it look like, you fool? It looks like paint, except except the smell is awful. It's blood. She clung to the door, swaying as the door moved, staring blood all over. Do you see it? Of course I see it. It's not all over. Stop making such a fuss. Um, I'm going to skip ahead. Is that more writing on the wall? Um, yes, indeed, dear. I don't know how you managed it. Theodore is accusing Eleanor of having written it herself. Um, be sensible call luke and the doctor why theodora asked wasn't it just to wasn't it to be just a little private surprise for me a secret just for the two of us then pulling away from eleanor who tried to hold her from going further into the room she ran to the great wardrobe and threw open the door and cruelly began to cry my clothes she said my clothes steadily eleanor turned and went up to the top of the stairs luke she called doctor um She's hysterical. Someone, something has gotten red paint in her room and she's crying over her clothes. Um, We don't see the description of the room. We get descriptions Mm -hmm. and dialogue. We get the dialogue of what the characters are saying about it, but we don't get 
uh, we, we get a dialogue saying it smells, it stinks, mm-hmm. it's not blood, it's it's not red paint, but we don't actually see that from a neutral reader perspective. Yeah, yeah, we're given no objectivity on the scene. It's entirely in that subjective realm. Yeah, which is important one for you know just suspense like while reading that i'm like oh my god why are they in a fight right now i need to know if there's blood (laughs) Um, Uh uh but second it's important too because later dr montague's wife said there's nothing wrong with theodora's clothes right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so if one of the many elements at play here is is a ghost real Mm -hmm. keeping it from that um subjective character's perspective and what they said out loud helps make us as the reader question wait i thought that was real at the time wasn't not like yeah exactly but then it's like and then it raises further questions of was that hallucination shared because clearly they all saw something like that was there it wasn't just one person like yeah at least the core four did yeah yeah exactly yeah um i i I agree i i think that this sort of like Keeping the um, reader's perspective uh, entirely within that of the characters, essentially, like not allowing them to there to be a camera that's outside of what what they do, is extremely effective in, in like you said, building suspense and um, building also the relationship between the characters based around what they experience like based mm-hmm. around their their shared thing. Like it it not only strengthens like the reading of a horror story but also it strengthens the reality because the most important thing in this scene that's happening to the characters is not the blood like you said it's the fight that they're having like they're having an argument and that's what's leading eleanor further down the path of of like having the break from reality that she has essentially by the end of the book that's what's important to her in that scene but the reader is fascinated by is there blood on this or not at the same time like it it creates that tension between those things and and that's it's very effective yeah yeah so the the fight that the content of the fight that they're having um earlier eleanor is socially anxious Mm -hmm. earlier she felt like everyone else was condescending to her and Mm -hmm. so in this scene when theodore is the one who discovers the scary thing and Theodore is the one who's upset because it's her clothes that have been damaged. She's taking this opportunity to position herself as the calm and reasonable one and histo- Theodora as the hysterical one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's just so many more. There's so much more. If you don't focus just on plot summary of what's happening, if you let that come through the filter of Theodora and Eleanor's fight, um, there's just more elements at play, right? You can sneak mm-hmm. in. What, ha- what matters to the long term, to, to, to really the story at large, to the novel at large, is not, is there blood on the clothes? It's mm-hmm. Eleanor and Theodora are in a fight. That is yeah. what like leads to what actually matters in this novel, which is Eleanor's break. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, there was something I was going to ask, but I've forgotten it. I'll let you know if it comes back to me, but yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, so that is the craft element. That is, you know, a yeah. amazing tool that we can use in not just horror writing, but all writing. Um, yeah. It's what is actually happening physically in this room does not matter as much as what does it mean to the characters. Mm-hmm. So I think making yourself write it filtered through the characters, either the their interior dialogue or through text, through like spoken 
word, mm-hmm. um, it'll help you as the writer focus on, you know, not just what are the mechanics, what do I need to get done in the scene, but like mm-hmm. elevating that to character driven. Um, what does it mean to the characters and their relationships changing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess then I, my question will be like, so so we see this used to great effectiveness here in a horror story, and I think that there is something about the way that horror works that makes this kind of an, a, a sort of easier technique to use within those confines. How do you think we might use it elsewhere, or, or what, what are some other things that might uh, benefit from this sort of um, the, this sort of play? Yeah, great question. Um, I think comedy and horror are really similar genres. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in yeah, even you know, I've been thinking about Milkfed since mm-hmm. I did that class with Melissa Broder, um, and there's moments in it where it's not it's not the content of what, for example, that scene where she's describing to her therapist her mom not being very supportive when she texted good news to her mom. And what matters in that moment is not what did the mom say specifically? What did you say in return? Like, what is it? It's not, that's not what is important. It's how reluctant is she to describe that to her therapist? What does that mean for her relationship with her mom? Um, It's not just the content of what was said in the text exchange with her mom that was offensive to her, but it was, uh, you know, filtered through how blasé she was about it and how much she was originally trying to deny that that hurt her feelings, that her mom wasn't very supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think it's in every genre, like your characters will feel fuller and deeper, not just if you show what they're upset about, but if you Mm -hmm. actually um, only show that they're upset and don't necessarily yeah. focus on what, what caused them to be upset. Yeah. It's like a step beyond show. Don't tell even like it's not only, it's not just show what's happening in a scene. It's only show, like you said, like show the subjective reaction to the scene, like show, show, show what the scene means to the people in it more than just the scene itself is I think a big thing there. Yeah. Yeah. No. Do you have any ideas of other places to use that kind of technique? Um, I, I think that it might come through in just like, just on that, if we're taking it down to the base level, like using, well, the kind of terms I just described that of course, any dramatic scene benefits from something like that. Anything Mm -hmm. where you have two characters that are having an argument or a fight about something, or there's just a moment of high tension or between two characters this could be really useful and also it's a great thing for um if you want to show two characters that are have different interpretations of a scenario if you want to have two characters both think they know what's going wrong and potentially have one be right and one be wrong or have them both be wrong about a scenario this sort of thing is incredibly useful um i can see this getting a lot of play in like mystery also, mm-hmm. if we're talking in genre conventions for something like that, for f- characters fundamentally misunderstanding what they're looking at and going down an incorrect pathway because of that, and, and then having to realize later what that meant. Like, yeah. Yeah, there's um, in a literary fiction book, my favorite novel, as I've mentioned a bazillion times, The Great Believers mm-hmm. by Rebecca Mackay, um, there's a really pivotal moment where our point of view, the point of view character, Yale, stumbles upon a friend of his... Uh, giving him a weird look in the bathroom. Spoiler mm. for the great believers, y'all. Seriously, mm. skip the next thirty seconds if you haven't read this book yet. It's this is like one of the best moments of writing in the past five years. 
Um, and Yale at the time gorgeously thinks, oh my gosh, this friend is in love with me. That's why he's being so weird right now. But I have a boyfriend, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's later revealed, Yale's mistaken. The friend's being weird around him because the friend has fucked his boyfriend. And the boyfriend mm. told him that Yale's cool with it. Mm. <laughs> so, like, getting it from the subjective point of view character, you know, at the time, the initial read of the situation, it was really beautifully written, a gorgeous little moment of, mm-hmm. you know, what, oh, what could have been, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But then to later have that reveal and, like, to realize as the reader before the subjective point of view character realizes what was really happening mm-hmm. was delicious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we turn this into an exercise? Wait, I've got one more example. Ooh, you got another that thing? I talk yeah, through. please. Um so this is this is not a two character moment. This is towards the end of the book, yes, mm-hmm. Eleanor is the one who has the mental break, but all of all of the core four are not doing well. <laughs> they, they are they are having a stressful time. Yeah. They are <laughs> on yeah. edge. They are also experiencing the knockings for example Mm, the paranormal whatever it is yeah so luke is just kind of rambling uh this Mm. is chapter eight section three um luke is just kind of rambling about this house it's also motherly everything is so soft everything is so padded great embracing chairs and sofas which turn to be hard and unwelcome when you sit down and reject you at once that's the opening here we're mizzlesen just like luke's rambling okay got it (laughs) Um, (laughs) and then luke continues to ramble um, he is, he's, you know, talking about the lampshade, the tiny pieces of broken glass, candy jar at Theo's elbow is a, has a globe on it. In the dining room, there's a bowl of particularly filthy yellow glass resting upon the cupped hands of a child, an Easter egg of sugar with a vision of shepherds dancing inside. A bosomy lady supports the stair rail on her head and under glass in the door. He's just rambling, describing, yeah. um, details about the house. Mm-hmm. We're at the end of the novel, and we're getting mm-hmm. these details about the house for the first time because they yeah. haven't been relevant until now. Yeah, right. You don't need yeah. to necessarily describe every detail about why the house is spooky on page one. Mm-hmm. It can come out mm-hmm. later, and mm-hmm. it will feel actually more rewarding for us to realize more things about the spooky house yeah. at the end when we've been here for so long. Yeah, and, and also this does a neat thing where it's like at this point because there hasn't been a. A ton of description the readers filled in gaps in their head mm-hmm. like we we've done it on our own we've described our own version of the scary house and then this allows us to dot further details into it because we know the general layout for the most part we know where doors are we know the colors of various rooms and things like that but not too much beyond that there's like oh there is a bed in this room but is it you know a small twin bl- bed on a wireframe thing or is it a full canopy we don't yeah. really know we fill that in ourselves um, but and, and this does that excellent thing of like allowing these further little creepy details to find their way into the picture we've already made in our head because they're small enough to be able to fit in nicely with any of that. It doesn't interrupt any sort of flow you might have personally held. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm turning this into an exercise, this lesson in general into an exercise, mm-hmm. um, my advice would be, you know, of course, draft one, you need to know those, like, if you if those details matter to you and you want to make sure that they're part of your story in some way, put mm-hmm. them in early and draft one if you need to. You don't have to be clever about how you get, like, how you hit all the notes that you need to hit in draft one. Mm-hmm. But as you're revising, you know, find opportunities. Go through as you're, you print out what you've written in draft one and highlight the opportunities for things 
where the objective truth doesn't necessarily matter. It can wait another few chapters to get the objective mm-hmm. truth out if mm-hmm. it comes out at all. Mm-hmm. And um, instead, think about okay, who do I have in this in this scene? Who do I have looking at this, and how would they react to it? How would they describe it? That's such a clean exercise. I like that a lot because it already a lot. It just lets you take things you already have. It doesn't require too much of like putting in new stuff necessarily. It's just what do I already have? What's already in this story? And how do I just recontextualize that through the other people that are in it? How do I make them the the display case for this rather than the um, the, the the reactors? Yeah. Yeah. If you're writing something character driven. It doesn't matter what the house looks like, right? Like, mm-hmm, it, it mm-hmm. only matters if it impacts the characters. And it does. Yeah. It impacts Luke. He's freaked out, and he's angry, and he's latching onto small details to try to ground himself and complain about them instead of the larger scary thing, which is that he thinks he might be losing his mind. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, get, those, get the plot details out there. Get the scene setting, the world building out there in draft one. But as you're revising, ask yourself seriously... Does this actually matter to the characters? And if not, mm-hmm. maybe cut it. And if it does, yeah. can you put it through their perspective? Yeah. And, and stuff like that is like, even if it's not like a specifically character-driven work, like all of that stuff, like world building, is more interesting to receive through like encountered as knowledge within characters. Like you never want someone to just explain shit to you. Like you never want that to just be explained on the page, like what this is, why it's here. Like, you want there to be a personal reaction to it. Like, the the character has a connection to it or something like that. And that be the important bit. And then you also just, you get to explain it through that anyways. Like, because they'll explain it in their own perspective of it. Like, yeah. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. That's my, yeah. that's, that's the exercise suggestion. Beautiful. Well, Wait, then there's one other good. moment in The Haunting of Hell House yes. that, like, we can't talk about this book and not talk about this. Okay. Uh, this is chapter six, section three. Mm-hmm. Do you remember mm-hmm. this? Eleanor and Theodora go for a walk at night. Um, This sounds familiar. Uh, Let's see. Chapter 6. Section 3. This is not relevant to the core craft lesson of the day. Mm -hmm. So, folks, if you are just in here for craft lessons and get out, get out now. But, like, this is one of the most gorgeous moments of writing from Mm -hmm. the 20th century, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, This is is the peak. This is the climax of the novel for me. Yeah. Yeah. so Eleanor and Theodora get into a fight in mm-hmm. where the core four are hanging out, I think in the library or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's nighttime. And they storm out into the dark, even though everyone yeah. has agreed that's a bad idea and it's yeah. spooky <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're walking, their first day at Hill House, they had taken this walking path down to the pretty brook. Mm-hmm. And they're having a fight. Um, they're moving along the path towards the brook, in the darkness, their feet felt that, that they were going downhill, and each privately and perversely accused the other of taking deliberately a path they had followed together once before in happiness. They're having a fight before this. Um, I interpreted this as Theodora uh, accusing Luke of having having taken romantic or sexual advantage of Eleanor. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that how you read that scene, too? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Theodora is saying he's a rake. And then Eleanor is saying, it's nothing to me what he is, as if you cared anyway. So she's denying, like, Im- implying that they didn't have any yeah. relations. Yeah. Um, and then also accusing Theodora of, like, what do you care? Are you going to say it or not? Do you care about me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
anyway, it doesn't, Eleanor says, it doesn't mean anything to you, no matter what happens. Why should you care whether I make a fool of myself? Oh my god, I love this scene so much. (laughs) Theodora was silent for a moment, walking in the darkness, and Eleanor was suddenly absurdly sure that Theodora had put out a hand to her, unseen. Theo, Eleanor said awkwardly, I'm no good at talking to people and saying things. Theodora laughed. What are you good at? She demanded, running away. Okay, this is it. This is the best paragraph from 1959. (laughs) Nothing irrevocable had been spoken, but there was only the barest margin of safety left them, each of them moving delicately along the outskirts of an open question, and, once spoken, such a question as, do you love me, could never be answered or forgotten. They walked slowly, meditating, wondering, and the path sloped down from their feet and they followed, walking side by side in the most extreme intimacy of expectation, semicolon, their fainting and hesitation done with, and they could only await passively for resolution. Each knew, almost within a breath, what the other was thinking and wanting to say, semicolon. Each of them almost wept for the other. This is delicious ben tell me you interpreted this the way that i am about to say i interpreted this <laughs> well i don't know well, dude, please go yeah, ben they're gay go. yes of course yeah. <laughs> ben they're gay yeah. <laughs> yeah well i mean the do you love me kind of puts that out there pretty easily <laughs> you yeah. caught it before then right yeah. you caught that theodora's roommate is not a roommate yeah like they're they're there together they're the ones that are the core emotional relationship of this thing also like they're the two of them and their kind of like coming together and moving apart and the weird desire they have for each other and simultaneous kind of annoyance they always find with one another is the like core story of the thing. Yeah, Yeah, that is the core repression. I mean, from the beginning, one of the first comments Eleanor makes about Theodora, Theodora is wearing a yellow shirt and Eleanor says, you bring more light into this room than the window. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the crush is really there if you're willing to see it from the beginning. But like this moment is so key to horror in my mind like Mm -hmm. there this is a beautiful you know moment of like admit your crush admit your crush admit your crush Mm -hmm. like that tension Mm -hmm. is always fun in any genre but after this moment where they're like they know the other one is attracted to them they just know it and Mm -hmm. it's still so repressed Mm -hmm. um they perceive at the same moment a change in the path and that the other one knew about it, afraid to stop, they move on together, the pack white and blackened. All of a sudden, like something supernatural is happening. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, the opportunity yeah. to just say, I'm attracted to you, I like you, and mm-hmm. like feel that reciprocal attraction is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it never comes back. Yeah. Um, they're, they just kind of move forward. Um, yeah. It's just such a gorgeous moment of writing. Um, the only barest margin of the safety left them, each of them moving delicately along the outskirts of an open question and once spoken such a question as do you love me can never be answered or forgotten. Uh, that could be in that could be in a romance novel. You know? yeah, it really could be, yeah. Like that that is like a, a, a beautiful little sentence right there that that really hits it. Yeah. 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 Shirley Jackson's an interesting character. Yeah. She never wrote about sex, um, mm-hmm. at least according to the intro I read about her. Mm-hmm. She wrote in a letter that she ended up never sending to a friend of hers. Um, she was pissed off that one of her first novel, that her first novel, that like a British scholar had said that there were lesbian themes in it. 
Mm-hmm. And she, like, wrote this rambling letter to her friend that she ended up never sending. So, like, mm-hmm. good Lord. I hope that if I die famous that no one ever finds my drafts. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she says in this letter that she didn't send um, that uh, I'm writing about ambivalence, but it is an ambivalence of the spirit or the mind, not the sex. It is fear itself, fear of self that I am writing about fear and guilt and their destruction of identity um which sounds really closeted to me girl i think you're writing yeah. out sex <laughs> yeah yeah you know the, that's one of those things and, and shirley jackson had a really weird life too like her she was a bit of a freak right so she married a man but he had a bunch of affairs yeah he had a bunch of affairs and she became an agoraphobe and like wouldn't leave her house and, and just all like you know and as you watch the progression of her novels, like, they talk about the comedic housewife novels. Like, those kind of drop off at a certain point, and it's only horror stories after that, and <laughs> then she dies in her 60s. Like, Yeah, she was taking... Let me find out. She was taking amphetamines as if they were aspirin, like, with yeah. the, like, liberty of that. And then she died very young, like, in her 40s, 49, okay. yeah. uh, of cardiac arrest. Yeah, she was yeah. 48 years old when she died Jeez. in her sleep of Jeez. cardiac arrest. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 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 A, a very tragic figure of, of literature. Someone who deserved a lot better than she got. Like, she um, could have written a hell of a romance novel if she had wanted yeah. to. Yeah. She she could have written a hell of a lot more novels uh, and gone forward from there. But, yeah. It is what it is. But, yeah. Thank you for bringing this to me. Thank you for getting me to read this, too, because it had been on the list for a while. Definitely a fan of hers. And also, I was a fan of the show, but that's a very different thing. Oh my like, god, yeah. We should probably acknowledge how different the show was. Yeah. It's a different story. Like, it's just a di- I think it's a good story, too, and I think it's successful, but it, it's, a, it's a whole different thing. Like, yeah. yeah they're, they're, it's about a family and about, you know, the bonds between family. And mainly it's about addiction, I think, is, like, the big theme in there. Mm-hmm. Is because there's the one brother who's addicted to heroin, and that's, like, the big overcoming that happens in the entire thing. Like, yeah. yeah. But it's... And, and in that one, the ghosts are very much real. Like, the oh, go- yeah. they're like the ghosts are like objectively there and haunting them. <laughs> like, For yeah. sure, those ghosts are real in the, movie, yeah. in the TV show. Um, it's a great, yeah. it's it's a great show. But it, yeah, and it does use. Um, I actually don't think that you know the the moment that I connected with is the moment that I just read that I think could have been in a romance novel as as much as a horror or anything else like that. But mm-hmm. the show only uses. Um, the book opens and closes with like a similar description of of Hill House, mm-hmm. and the show like uses that description like in yeah. voiceover. Yeah, um, and I don't, I don't, I, like it's it's perfectly fine, but it's just not it's not what hit for me in this novel. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Hill House, Hill House itself, not saying stood against its hills, holding darkness within. It stood so for eighty years and might stand for eighty years more. Blah blah blah. Um, yeah. Totally fine. Just yeah. like not the. The core of this story is repression and yeah. not saying things out loud mm-hmm. or um, even when we're filtering the scary stuff through character dialogue, like they're trying to be brave about it. They're cracking. Yeah. Well, at some points, Dr. Montague cracks jokes about it as he's going. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. Agreed. But yeah, other than that, anything else you want to say on Hill House before you tell me something that you've been into for it's the last dope, six months? Check out yeah. classics like Hill House. Um, but yeah. yeah, so let's let's conclude with our recommendation of the week. Um, yeah. Shoot, what have I done for the past? How long has it been? Six months. Seven I don't know. months, not eight months. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, a book I loved was Abandon Me 
by Melissa Favos. Hmm. Well, what is this? Yeah. Uh, it is her second book. It's Essay Collections. Um, and it does a beautiful job of weaving in, like, psychological studies, stuff on, like, attachment theory um, mm-hmm. with a compelling, you know, story with a beginning, middle, and end. So, <laughs> by Melissa Favos. Um, she also has some really gorgeous writing about sex in this mm-hmm. um, that I'd love to discuss at a later date. Sure. Hell yeah. Let's go. Um for me, uh, I'm gonna say I, I've been reading. Um, I, I've been reading a lot. Nothing, mostly just kind of like cheap science fiction and stuff like that. I started um, R.F. Kuang's uh, fantasy novel Bab- uh, Babel, uh, which seems interesting. I'm about 50 pages into that. That seems okay. Um, but the thing I'm going to actually uh, recommend, with a little bit of caveat, um, is uh, Darren Aronofsky's new movie, The Whale, uh, starring Brendan Fraser. Um, you may have heard about this. It definitely came around with a little bit of controversy surrounding the fat suit that Brendan Fraser is wearing yeah. th- throughout. Um, and it is a um, it is a story about the final days of a six hundred pound man. And like that's not spoilers. Saying that they basically tell you in the first ten minutes that he's going to die soon. Um, that's and that's the story. Um, I will say like th- this movie was excellent based on the performances of not just Brendan Fraser who does a wonderful job but of all of the actors it's an incredibly small cast uh pretty much every scene is done as a duo um there's I think a few scenes with three people in them but like that's the maximum number of people that are ever on screen in this um and it's just an incredibly tight-knit cast who are doing just a wonderful job of like playing with each other and being empathetic towards one another and Brendan Fraser's performance as the main character is excellent I will say that his view of this character is deeply empathetic, deeply sympathetic to this man and to his humanity and to the, like, character that he's portraying, like, is very apparent how how much love he has for this character and feels in this character. Um, The contrast, I will say, and the caveat is that, like, you know, of course he is in the fat suit, which is problematic for all the reasons that that is problematic. And Darren Aronofsky's camera is not empathetic towards this character in the same way that Fraser's performance is. Mm. Um... Like, there is very much, you know, he's interested in showcasing him as horrific and monstrous at times, like, although he does have sympathetic views of him at points, but it's like, there are times when, like, there's heightened music and stuff while he's eating, and it's very, it feels exploitative to a certain extent. But I think those moments do an interesting thing in their contrast towards the performance Hmm. because like i don't think that this was even necessarily intentional but because there is this tension like you you get this very like the outside observer's view in this case aronofsky and his camera that view is of course horrified of this person but the internal view given by fraser is very sympathetic and very beautiful so you end up seeing this like dual sense of like this person as a person and then how they are perceived beyond that like as a Mm. result of their body um it's it's a really good movie you know i cried a lot while i watched it me and fran both really enjoyed it so it's it's worth watching if you want to see it it's a very sad movie but it's worth watching if you want something about kind of the the triumph of the spirit beyond sadness yeah cool thanks i mean the last time you recommended a movie was everything everywhere all at once which rocked my socks (laughs) (laughs) that movie that movie's better that's a better movie that's still my favorite movie of the year but that was that was a hell of a movie last last recommendation hit so uh, (laughs) can't be gotta be pretty good yeah excellent 
Excellent. But yeah, I think that's that's it for us. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for tuning in, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Writing Podcast. It's yeah. great to have you here again. Yeah, I guess we would. Are we thinking of trying to do this like once a month at this point or mm. something like that? Like, no comment. I don't know. Her. No comment. I don't okay, know. fair, fair, <laughs> fair. But but we're back in the feed and we're gonna do it again. Um, <laughs> you know that Mariah Carey. I don't know her meme. Yeah. <laughs> Scheduling. I don't know her. <laughs> yeah. See you next time, everybody. Yeah. Bye. Bye.